Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle. Yet the look should be timeless, and you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Traditionally, when a girl is to get married, the, the gentleman would come and ask the permission from the girl's father. And once he gets the green light, the girl needs to produce this lovely frothy coffee as part of <laughs> as, as part of the, the test. So there are so many significance in traditions that is attached to Turkish coffee. That was Turkish chef Oslam Warren, author of Oslam's Turkish Table. We'll be chatting with her later about the cooking of southern Turkey. Before we get to Oslam's Turkish table, let's check in with reporter Zach Dyer, who's here to tell us about a diner he visited in St. Louis that specializes in fried brain sandwiches. Zach, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Good. So describe Shotzi's Bar and Grill. You walk in the door, what do you see? What's on the menu? Uh, what's it like? I think Shotzi's is like a lot of kind of like... Um neighborhood bar and grill places in St. Louis. You know, it's the kind of place where you would see old neon Budweiser signs. There's some sports memorabilia. There's a long bar in the back um, and a very kind of neighborhood clientele. There's a lot of folks that have been eating there for decades. And um, the place has been operating as a bar and restaurant since 1946. And um, the brain sandwich has been on the menu pretty much since day one. So is this something people do on a dare and it's sort of a fun thing? Or is this, are people actually go to Shotzi's Bar and Grill because they really like to have a brain sandwich on uh, Thursday at lunch, for example? You know, when I talked to the owner, Mike Carlson at Shotzi's, he told me that it's kind of a mix of both. 
we got people that drive two hours on Saturdays to come get it. We're one of the only places left that still serve it. It's, it's a lot of older clientele that likes it. You no know, farmers would eat them with had eggs and brains together, but we formed it into a sandwich, and people love it. You know. I think you wrote that in the nineteen early nineteen eighties, the Post Dispatch held a best brains contest, and there were thirty one brain restaurants. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and so th- this this was a big deal even back in the 80s. So how did this get started and why has it sort of almost petered out at this point? Well, the earliest examples of brain sandwiches actually date as far back as the 19th century. Uh, St. Louis was a big town for Germans when they were immigrating to the United States. And, um, you know, these were folks that had a very frugal mentality when it came to the parts of the animal that they were willing to eat and use. And um, on top of that, in East St. Louis, you had a thriving uh, slaughterhouse industry and stockyards. So there was, there was a ready supply of, of brains and other kind of, you know, variety meats. Yeah, it's, it's always kind of been a, a blue-collar, working-class, kind of guilty pleasure food. And then, so it became less popular because of what, mad cow disease? Yeah, you know, over the years, younger people just were less interested in eating brain. And um, then when mad cow hit in the late 90s, it made sourcing calf brains in particular, which are supposed to be the highest quality, very difficult to source. And so the few remaining places that still serve it today, um, a lot of them have turned over to pig brain, actually, as an alternative. Okay, so you get a pig brain, a pork brain. Mm -hmm. How do they prepare the brains? Uh, what goes into making a brain sandwich? So let's just pause here, Chris, and play a little of the tape from my interview with Tom Williver, who's been the cook at Shotzi's for about eight years. You have to clean them. Sometimes there's a little bone left in there. So you have to make sure that's basically all out for the most part. And then, and then you get two different bowls, one with egg wash, one with your flour and your um, seasonings in it. Go back and forth, kind of like doing um, like double dip in it, building up the patty from the egg wash to the flour, back to the egg wash. And then kind of push them together, kind of like a um, hamburger more or less, like making a hamburger patty and throw them into the freezer before they kind of mush out. And they're ready to be cooked after that. So they put it on what, rye bread? Do they toast the bread? What else goes on the sandwich? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the one at Shotzi's at least is served on kind of a swirl rye. They toast that bread. And then it's served with red onion, pickles, and mustard. So do you actually taste the brains with all of this, or are the brains there for mostly for texture? You know, um, the brain has, it definitely has a flavor, but it's not a strong taste. You know, it's not kind of like, I don't know if you've ever had heart, but, you know, that's something that has a pretty yeah. forward flavor to it for organ meat. And uh, the brain is much more neutral, but, you know, for I think for the average American palate, it's really a texture food, which is pretty unique. You don't really encounter a lot of, you know, meat protein, at least, that, that has this kind of pillowy, custardy texture that's contrasted with that crunch of the, of the breading. So I, I guess there's a brain sandwich crowd and a <laughs> no thank you brain sandwich crowd. Yes, yes. I mean, it's definitely something you either love or hate. Um, but here's another clip from my conversation with a cook, Tom Williver, making what I thought was a funny admission. So did you grow up in St. Louis? Yes. So growing up, did you know what a brain sandwich was? Um, I did for my grandfather and my stepdad. I've never had one, though. You've never had but one? No, they, they, they claim that they're good, just like head cheese and brain sandwiches. You know, I mean, they were all old school, so you know, they, they, they ate all that. I mean, I've thought about trying one before, but... You want to try one with me today? I, I will. I mean, I think know, we should. We should try a small it bite. No, that's fine with me. Great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's not really bad, actually. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Uh-huh. You know? well, what were you expecting? I got like a tofu-y just taste, you know, and it, it's actually got a good flavor and it's not bad. All right, great. Not bad at all. Cool. Would you have it again? Um. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, are you ever going to go back, or you've you've done now? You're 
Well, you've, you've had your brain sandwich adventure. <laughs> well, I definitely told someone, it's like, I've certainly knocked it off the bucket list. That's for sure. Um, but when I told people that I was reporting this story, I, I was amazed at the number of people that wanted to try one with me. So I think the next test is going to be just trying out some of these other restaurants that have them and seeing how they all stack up next to each other. Well, maybe that's, yeah, eat a brain sandwich a day for 365 days, and that's a um, Pinterest board or Facebook <laughs> post every day, right? It's, it's yeah. great social media. Yeah, it's definitely uh, Instagrammable. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Reporting for Milk Street from St. Louis, that was journalist Zach Dyer. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Molt and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to be brilliant? Chris, I am so ready to always be brilliant, yes. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Jamie from Peachtree City, Georgia. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? You sound peachy. That was a horrible <laughs> pun. How can we help, help you? you? Sure. Uh, my family and I eat a fair amount of kidney beans, soups and stews, Jamaican rice and peas, refried beans. Mm-hmm. We love them. So trying to save some money, I bought the dried beans and tried to cook them myself. But I ended up with waterlogged beans, some crunchy and some mushy. So just wondered, what am I doing wrong? How are you cooking the beans? The soaking method first, I did it two ways, soaking in plentiful amount of water overnight, and then I cooked them with some salt. Second time, I soaked them with salt in the water and then cooked them. So I had read that that was supposed to yield a better texture. How much salt and how much water for the soaking? Um, Four quarts of water to, I think it was a couple of tablespoons maybe can't remember. I yeah. don't remember like a quarter cup. I think for two quarts of water, that is eight cups, use two tablespoons of kosher salt. Okay. That would do oh. is soak it overnight. Not table salt, kosher salt, because kosher Interesting. salt. Interesting. That's what I was using. I was using table salt. Yeah. Well, if you use two tablespoons for four quarts, that would be about the same because kosher salt's okay. almost like, twice as, you need to use twice as much more kosher. Because it's much coarser, so you need yeah. more of it. Sure. And so okay. you, you did that, and then you cooked them, and they still were not evenly cooked? Right. Where are you getting your beans? Well, not the highest quality store. I'll probably <laughs> say it could just be a bad bean. Was, yeah. it, was it a big barrel of beans? No. It was a pound package from a discount grocer, let's just say. Yeah, that's the problem. I think that's the problem. Because <laughs> okay. you're, you're still... I thought beans were beans. No, no. And the other thing that can be a problem, what's interesting about what you said about your problem, is that some of them were mushy and some of them were still tough. So that sounds to me like those beans in that bag were different ages. Because one of the problems oh. that happens is oh. if you buy a bag of beans that's been sitting on that shelf and getting dusty for, you know, a year, it's going to take a lot longer to cook. But they'll all cook the same amount of time. Sounds like this was a mix of beans okay, of different ages. So I would go with the supermarket brand. You're still going to save a heck of a lot of money cooking them yourself. And I think you'll have success. I actually buy my beans online now. There are places that do nothing but sell dried beans some of them here in the States, I find those are much fresher and they cook up really nicely. And the supermarket, you just don't know how old they are. So I would do that if you cook a lot of beans. I think the beans you're cooking are going to be better tasting and texture-wise anyway. But from a financial point of view, you're right. How many cups you get out of a bag versus how much you get out of a can and the price comparison. You're doing the right thing. Good for you. Okay. On two levels. Financially and taste, you're better off. So try that. Yes. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Well, good afternoon. This is Mike. How are you? Hi, Mike. How can we help you today? Okay. A few years ago, I was um, diagnosed with an allergy to red meat, specifically pigs and cows and probably any other animal with hair. And I figured out pretty quickly that a lot of recipes just don't work. But occasionally I'll see some sort of a recipe where it's, uh, say, a pork loin or something. And I'm wondering, you know, could I substitute something for a pork loin and make it come out good? Dark chicken meat, which means thighs, you know, legs, etc. Those, I would say, bone in, skin on, because they cook longer. But those are good for about 45 minutes, maybe up to an hour. 
you know, low simmer in a stew or something. Boneless, skinless is probably 20 to 30 minutes. But What about something like a turkey leg quarter? Yeah, you could do that. Certainly, that'll take longer to cook, absolutely. That's a good idea. Okay. Are you looking to use the same kind of sauce as you would on a pork, you know, loin or tenderloin, or you just would like to roll it up and have a roast and be able to slice it? Well, you, it? you could take dark turkey or chicken meat and, and roll it up and make a roast out of it, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. It would have a lot of little pieces in there. Yeah, but that, you get the butcher do it for you. Yeah. A lot of this stuff is just, you know, maybe a dry rub with herbs or something like that, you yeah. know? Yeah. I, I would say it's stews and it's uh, the turkey legs fine, chicken dark meat you know, in a stew and for an hour. You know what we used to do at this restaurant I used to work at is we would take a whole chicken, take all the bones out, and put it skin side down and pound it. So we ended up with a rectangle. So, I mean, white meat, dark meat, right. the whole nine yards. Somebody would have mm-hmm. to bone it out for you. And then we would put various things inside. And roll it up. And roll it up. And it would be a cylinder just like right. a pork loin. So we'd put hard-boiled eggs and sautéed spinach. We'd put prosciutto, which you would not, but... Maybe you could have some turkey bacon and, you know, turkey Is, is that a ballantine or a galantine? Well, I wasn't even thinking of the French one. This oh. was Italian. Oh. We marinated it with garlic, lemon, olive oil, and then put all these things in and rolled it up. That's a good idea. I would check out venison because that's quite different, and it may be you're not allergic to that, and that will solve your problem in about two seconds. You can roast a backstrap, a loin of venison, just like you would do beef to a very rare temperature, and it slices just like beef. It'd be great. I have one other suggestion, which, do you eat duck breast? Certainly. Because duck breast is another good one. It's got a more robust taste than other poultry. And maybe mm-hmm. you could take a couple of duck breasts and tie them together and make them into a cylinder and put the skin on the outside and brown it off, and that would be possible, too. So I'm going go. for the venison and the elk, but you can, okay. you can go for the duck <laughs> we breast. We don't know if he can have it. I'm trying he, to be practical He's going here. for a turkey like you're going for duck breast. I'm going for elk. So Okay, there we go. Anyway. No, uh, I like the chicken idea. But, but the chicken's the easiest, and mm-hmm. you can cook it for up to an hour with the skin and bone in. So, Mike, thank you for calling. Appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, take care. Bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a question, a complaint, or even words of encouragement, give us a call at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Wayne Miller. Hi, Wayne. Where are you calling from, and how can we help you? Reno, Nevada. Nice. What it is is I've had a crockpot forever from the 60s, and my wife got a hold of it, and she either threw it out, or bury it. I can't find it. It was so old, <laughs> the paint was wore off the outside. And then she bought this thing that's not round, it's oval. And, you know, I had to practically take a class in data processing to figure out how to turn <laughs> it on, you know. And everything I cook in the crock pot, the meat comes out terrible. There's no flavor in the meat. And it's extremely dry. And I can't figure out what I'm doing different. Well, my guess is that your new slow cooker is cooking at a higher temperature than your old original crock pot. So if you cook for four hours or six hours, whatever you do, instead of being at a 200-something degrees, maybe you're at 275 or you're at 300. As meat cooks, you get to a sweet spot in a, let's say, shoulder roast where the connective tissue is broken down, it sort of lubricates the meat. Even though you've lost moisture, you have that dissolved fat, which almost becomes gelatin-like, which holds on to moisture. And you get a sweet spot around maybe 190 degrees, 195 internal. What's probably happening is you're going beyond that and holding it at like 205 or 210 internal for an hour or two, at which point you sort of lose that sweet spot. So my guess is it's just being overcooked. You know, I've noticed recently that it's bubbling. I mean, fiercely right. bubbling. Shouldn't. So are you trying to use the low setting? No, I'm doing the old way. I used to turn it on high, throw my stuff in it, and go to work, and it come back, and I was good. So I need to go to a lower temperature. I think that's the key here is just do low. I have a little secret piece of information about this. Low and high on new slow cookers eventually end up at the same temperature. When you cook on low, you're not cooking at 180 versus if you cook on high, you're cooking at 220. 
Right. You will always end up at the same final temperature of the machine. We'll end up, let's say, at 200. It'll end up there no matter which you pick low or high. It'll just take more time to get there. So the problem is some of the newer ones, I'm guessing now, the final temperature may just be too high. Yeah. Lower temperature in a shorter time. Yeah. Right. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Take Take care. care. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Uslam Warren, author of Uslam's Turkish Table about the cooking of southern Turkey. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosam, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
This is Milk J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Uslan Warren was born in Antakya, the southeastern region of Turkey, an area that borders Syria. It is well known for its spices as well as the use of harissa and tahini. This week I chat with her about the cooking of her homeland in her new book, Uslan's Turkish Table. I love history, and I know in your book, in the preface, you talk a little bit about the Ottoman Empire, started out in the 14th century, lasted, you know, 500 years at least. So could you just briefly just tell us, from a culinary point of view, what are the different regions of Turkey, and just very quickly, how are they distinct? I would say at least four. So the the heartland, Middle Anatolia, it's very much based on grain, hearty, hearty lentils, legumes and whatnot, and meat. Go to the um, Black Sea region, and you will see the influence with pine nuts, cabbage, as well as uh, sea produce like anchovies, lobster. Another very special region is Southern Turkish region, where my book, Özlem's Turkish Table, is focused on. So that's where we flavor our food through spices, as well as natural condiments like pomegranate molasses, as well as pepper paste. And you will get the most delicious pistachios, especially in Gaziantep region. And bulgur, again, uh, featured very highly. And when you go to the Asian region on the West Coast, that's where you see a lot of Mediterranean and Asian influence. Um, herbs, seasonal produce, citrus, again, high on fish, um, vegetables cooked in olive oil. Flavors are lighter, much lighter. But as you can imagine, it's because of climate is much milder. So if you lived in Istanbul today and you were you know, reasonably well off. I know there's an Italy in Istanbul, for example. Do people still eat traditional foods or are they going to go out for a plate of pasta and then get Mexican food or, you know, the world's changing. So talk about that. Yeah. Another good question. I lived in that fascinating city for 20 years. It is a huge melting pot. It's where East meets West. And you see the best of all the regional local cuisine in Istanbul, because there are so many different communities who live in Istanbul, the Jewish, the, the Greek, Armenian, as well as um, all local folks from all around Turkey would gather. So they all would bring their own culinary traditions. But Turks are quite traditionalists. You still see the influence of this Sarai cuisine, the palace cuisine, you know, beautiful vegetables cooked in olive oil, lovely stuffed mussels with cinnamon and pine nuts and currants. Uh, again, you know, that is influence from the ethnic groups that lived within the Ottoman Empire. So let, let's turn to Oslam's Turkish Table, your book, for a moment, because I have a, a bunch of questions because you know slightly more about Turkish cooking than I do. <laughs> so sure. um, Zatar, which is a, a mix, it's a blend, but yeah. it's, also, yeah. it's also an actual herb, right? So what for is sure. wild for Zatar? Sure. Is, you, you mentioned it's summer savory. I've heard that before. If you taste the wild herbs of tar, what does it taste like? It's really very similar to wild oregano and um, and a cross between marjoram and wild thyme, to be honest. And it grows wild in Antakya and the southern Turkish region. It's beautifully fragrant. So it's been greatly enjoyed as a herb, a fresh herb in, uh, in southern Turkey, where my roots are from. But it's even more popular and very enjoyable as the blend, za'atar blend, which actually I included in the condiments chapter in my cookery book. And za'atar blend is an incredible um, mixture of, well, traditional one is um, it can take up to 40 different things in it, including the nigella seeds and the sesame seeds, crushed cooked chickpeas, crushed um, ground pistachios, cumin, sumac, sea salt, black pepper, you name it, and it's there, and it's absolutely amazing. So you also talked in your book about, I really like this, bathing vegetables in a yes, uh, combination indeed. of water and pomegranate molasses to provide a richer indeed. flavor. So talk about that, because I've never heard that before. Oh, yes, that is a lovely ritual, actually. So that's very southern Turkish. My roots go back to ancient Antioch, Antakya, the southern part of Turkey. And I lived in my grandmother's home, almost 500-year-old stone home in ancient Antioch. And we would have all this incredible growth of pomegranates and mulberries and lemon. And, and what folks would do is 
turn all that lovely juicy pomegranates into this thick molasses so they would juice all those pomegranates and it would be simmered which becomes a thick molasses now is is this is the juice coming from the seeds um, only the seeds or the whole thing the whole thing well you would get rid of the pips okay. but you know you you basically uh, have the have the juice and then it would be boiled down to a very very thick syrup and it's gorgeously tangy and a bit of sweet and i rather prefer not to add much sugar in it just to taste the real juice and a little bit of it adds so much flavor and one of the ways we incorporate that is when we do our stuffed vegetables we dilute that lovely pomegranate molasses with a bit of water and we literally bathe our vegetables so that adds a gorgeous sweet and tangy flavor to the vegetable very often you see recipes that show up in different cultures. A lentil and bulgur soup, for example, which is, I think, one of your sort of classic go-to recipes. Uh, could you just talk about that for a second? Because that sounds like something that would really lend itself to the American kitchen pretty well. Mm. It's called spicy bulgur and lentil soup. In Turkish, it's called Ezogelin Çorbası. So the, the story says that Ezo the bride made the soup to uh, to her in-laws to, to impress them, and she did. And that's how she got the approval, and it's a big deal in my, in mm. my culture. Uh, it's, it is a lovely showcase of how we flavor lentils, legumes, and our dishes um, through spices. So that's a basic bulgur and lentil soup, but we flavor the soup with dried mint, Turkish red pepper flakes, and uh, olive oil. And, um, and a good generous squeeze of lemon. And, you know, these ingredients immediately transform the humble bulgur and lentil to a whole new level. Now, what about some simple spreads or dips like mahamara, esme, etc.? Mm. Could you mm. just talk about a couple things that the rest of us here in the States might make in our kitchens that are, are classically Turkish but are simple to do? Mm, for sure. Muhammara is a, is a staple in our traditional table, to be honest, especially my mother's. It is, a, in Turkish, we call it cevizli biber. So that incorporates um, walnuts, pepper paste, a bit of tomato paste, a tiny bit of onion, flavored again with olive oil, cumin, a bit of sea salt, and crushed all together. It's a lovely, lovely dip. It's so Moorish, you know, that actually gets better the next day. Uh, meze is a great big part of our, our culinary traditions because we love gathering and sharing. We love sitting together and have small platefuls of dips and salads and um, vegetables cooked in olive oil and um, flatbreads and all that. I mean, Esme is, as you say, another lovely example from southern Turkey. What's lunch like? Is that a lighter meal? Is the bigger meal a dinner? Um, dinner, I would say, still the main course, but lunchtime... People would still take time, either go out, go one of the traditional lokantas or pide shops, and have either a lovely sort of casserole like stuffed peppers with minced meat and rice and whatnot. What I love is actually our um, esnaf lokantas. So these are traditional working men restaurants, very um, you know, no frills, uh, nothing fancy. So you have this lovely, great big casseroles of slowly pre-cooked meals ready, reheated on a gentle heat. It could be a meatball casserole. It could be stuffed wine leaves. It could be green beans cooked in olive oil with some nice rice next to it. Or you can you you might fancy going to the pide shop next door and get a nice oval flatbreads with different topics. Dinner is still, I suppose, the time that families gather and have a have a big meal. In my part of the world, uh, my dad would love his soup, so it would always start with a soup chorba, and then you would either have a meat course with rice or fish, and um, of course, Turkish coffee is very special, so. Uh, you got to have some of that before or after uh, any meal. Yeah, I've I've fallen in love with Turkish coffee as opposed oh. to Italian espresso because uh, oh. I think it just has a lot more flavor. Just explain explain to us how you make it. Mm, do we have an hour? I could talk about Turkish coffee for an hour. <laughs> well, it is an incredibly special drink because it has so many traditions attached to it. It really is more than a drink for us. It is 100% um, Arabic 
from Arabica beans, but it's roasted and then finely ground. But the grounds are boiled in the water, right? Cooked in the water. It's yes, not like exactly. espresso. It's not... Exactly. Right. No, 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 no. So, yes, what you have is uh, traditionally you would have this long-handled pot called jezve in your hand, and you would measure a cupful of water, which is a s- similar size of espresso cups, and then a heaped spoonful of that ground coffee, and plus, if you want some sugar, you can add that or you can omit that. Then on a very gentle low heat, you will stir until everything is dissolved and you let that foam rise. So that foam rising at the top of the coffee is very precious. And then, you know, once the foam rises, you distribute the foam into cups and then you put the pot back and have another rice and then gently pour the coffee into the cup. And it is a drink that, you know, traditionally when a girl is to get married, the the gentleman would come and ask the permission from the girl's father. And once he get the green light, the girl needs to produce this lovely frothy coffee (laughs) as part of... As, as part of the, the test. So there are so many significance and traditions that is attached to Turkish coffee. So in the middle of the night, you're in London, you wake up. What, what is it you like to remember about growing up in Turkey? You know, I suppose hugely hospitality and sharing. I grew up in this um, great big household of my grandmother's 450-year-old home. And I never forget, my grandma's door would always be open to visitors. She would put two, three extra plates on the table because she knows there would always someone be turned up and they would be warmly welcomed to the the table. Uh, my grandfather was a food merchant and he would trade fresh produce with uh, next door Syria as well as within the city. All the cases of aubergines and figs and, you know, tomatoes would come in and out and oh, there would always be excess produce and it would always be shared with family and friends. That is, I think, what sums it up for me. That hospitality, that caring for one another. So the house you mentioned is 450-year-old stone house. Could you describe yeah. the house to us? It's a very special home. So rooms attached uh, one another, and there's a little courtyard with a fountain in the middle. There was pomegranate trees, fig trees, young walnut trees, mulberry trees. And my grandma would, for instance, uh, cool her watermelons in that little fountain. And when I was a child, I would swim with those watermelons. <laughs> and there's a lovely little alleyway that connects the house to the uh, long market, Uzunciashi in Antakya. So our daily job, for instance, in the morning would go and get the bread from the local bakery, as well as the cheese and whatnot. And if grandma is making a special flatbread with topping, she would prepare the topping, for instance, ahead of time. And again, we kids would take the filling to the bakery. The baker would cook for you, Hmm. and he would always do a little something extra, and we would bring it back home for breakfast. You know, uh, when you grow up with influences like that, I suppose it's in your blood. And um, unfortunately, I don't have a local bakery (laughs) that I could do that, but at least I have an oven that I can knock up a little za'atar bread and uh, and share with, with family and friends. It, I, I think I wouldn't move. <laughs> that sounds so appealing. <laughs> you know, trees, the fountain, the alleyway to the oh, bakery. Oh, it's, it's lovely. Um, really lovely. An extra couple of seats at the table. Oslam, thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to get a hard copy of your book, Oslam's Circus Table. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was Uslam Warren, chef and author of Uslam's Turkish Table. You know, the top Kapi Palace in Istanbul had the most amazing kitchens in history. There was a storehouse, a bakery, a butchery, a poultry and vegetable house. They even made their own yogurt and candles. And there was a compound for dairy cattle where clarified butter and cheese were made. Around 1600, over 1,000 kitchen staff were employed in top Kapi, and they fed 10,000 people per day. While the Ottomans were dining on a rich variety of foods, the Tudors in England were eating mostly meat. Vegetables were considered fit, only for the poor. So it's true, a nation that does not know its history is destined to repeat it. Right now I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good. As you know, I just got back from Taipei, 
And uh, in addition to spending late nights eating street food, which is fabulous, I found out I'm completely wrong. Once again, <laughs> about not using a wok. You know, years ago, I went to San Francisco, got a lesson from a Chinese cook who said that all her friends use nonstick skillets because American stovetops are flat. And so I thought that made a lot of sense. And I said, you know, throw out your wok. Well, I went to a restaurant called Shenge and spoke to the chef there, whose name is Kunying Cheng. And he's been doing this for decades. And he showed me how to use a wok. So first of all, the restaurant line is six humongous woks, metal counters, running water on the counters. It's just an amazing thing with a massive amount of heat. And we did a recipe called Three Cup Chicken. And what he showed me was how to use the shape of the wok and the heat in the wok to deep fry, shallow fry, stir fry, braise, do lots of things quickly and easily. And so I brought that recipe back, Three Cup Chicken, and asked you and the kitchen here at Milk Street to figure out how to do it in a wok, but do it in an American kitchen. That's right, Chris. And it was a very fun recipe to make. Very simple, not quite as simple as one cup of each ingredient, but the recipe is based on the fact that there were sort of three bowls at the ready, one with the rice wine, one with the sesame oil, and then one with the soy sauce. So to get started, we want to build the flavor base by really browning our chicken. So as you said, we're working with that really high heat. We get our oil nice and smoking. And one thing that's nice about this recipe, Chris, is there's no in and out of the skillet. So you put all the chicken in the wok at once, and then you don't touch it for five minutes. And that's going to give you that really nice sear and browning and flavor that we're looking for. Now, we did play with this recipe a little bit. Traditionally, when you had it, it was probably bone-in, skin-on chicken that was hacked up into little pieces. But we didn't really want to fight with the bone-in pieces, and we also didn't want to deep-fry it. So we just used those boneless, skinless chicken thighs cut into strips. So you brown the chicken, and then what? Do you take the chicken out and finish the recipe, or you just add more ingredients, or what? So no, Chris, the chicken stays right in the wok. So we add all of our aromatics, our ginger, our serranos, our garlic, and then we actually add a slurry of sake and cornstarch. And it's really important that you do use the cornstarch, Chris. That's what's going to make the sauce cling to the chicken and not be too soupy. So this is, what, 15 minutes start to end? That's right, Chris. It comes together really quickly, although there is one step I don't want to forget. After you pull it off heat, we're going to take three whole cups of fresh basil. You want to tear it up and mix it in, and that's going to add a ton of flavor. You know at Milk Street we love to add handfuls of herbs rather than, say, a couple tablespoons, and this is an awesome way to sort of showcase that technique. So I had to travel 10,000 miles to Taipei to figure out not to throw out my walk. But now I've learned my lesson. Catherine, thank you. Thank you, Chris. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Please stay tuned. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, you ready for a uh, new batch of questions? Yes, Chris, I am very ready. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Anne. Hi, Anne. Newton, Massachusetts. Newton, oh. Massachusetts. How can we help you? My question is about pie crust. I learned how to make a pie crust from my grandmother who grew up on a farm. And one of my first memories is standing beside her as she rolled out these pie crusts. And, and what she taught me was you start, you put the rolling pin right near you, and you always roll it away. So you roll it away, you turn it a quarter and then you just do this, and you end up with this beautiful circle. And then I was watching on TV, um, watching you guys roll out pie crust, right. and you weren't doing that. No. <laughs> and I just got curious. Look, you're obviously an expert with a rolling pin. And so when you <laughs> roll out pie dough, you're not pushing too hard. You're using a very light touch. The problem is a lot of people who don't do it all the time, if they start with a rolling pin near them and roll away, they keep rolling over the center of the dough constantly, and they overwork mm-hmm. it, and that'll develop gluten, and it'll start to snap back when they roll it out. You obviously yeah. know how to do it because you have the right touch. What we tell people is to use uh, – I use a, a tapered pin, but you can use a regular one. Start at 2 o'clock with the pin sort of heading towards the center of the dough, and then roll the pin in an arc from 2 to about down to 5. And so you're really putting the pressure on the right side of the dough. You're not overworking the center. Then you turn counterclockwise a quarter turn and do it again. So instead of working the center of the dough over and over again by pushing out across the center, you're really working the right side of the dough constantly. So you're changing the area where you're putting pressure. And that, especially if you're a beginner, is less likely to overwork the dough. It's a good technique. The other thing is I like to use a tapered pin that's not too thick because I can use less pressure. I find that big rolling pins tend to be a bit heavy, yeah. and it's easy to overwork it. I want to add two things to that. I was taught to start in the middle and roll away from you, don't go over the edge, and then go back to the middle right. and roll towards you. And then the second thing that I learned is also to make sure that there's enough flour on the counter that the dough is always moving. Because yeah, once it sticks to the counter, you're developing the gluten. But the other thing I learned, which I thought was really helpful, is instead of turning it a quarter turn, turn it an eighth of a turn. You will end up with much more of a round when you're done. Well, you know, one thing you said was really helpful, which is constantly turning. So what I do every few turns is I'll pick the dough up on the rolling pin, pick it up, maybe put a little more flour down and turn it over. So I'm constantly turning the dough over. I never go more than two or three rolls before I flip it over, mm-hmm. and that way it won't stick. Oh, so. that's interesting. Oh, so you're actually flipping it. You're actually flipping it. I, I, don't, don't, flip I don't flip I it. I constantly flip it. And it's obvious you don't need to take any lessons from us. Yeah, you, no, this You is learned true. it from your mother, and you know how to do it. Yeah. So. <laughs> was, I was just curious, and I really appreciate your, uh, sure. your input. Thanks for calling. Thank you much. Okay. Yeah. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Tyler from Bozeman, Montana. How can we help you? I have a couple questions about baking that I'm hoping to get some answers to. Uh, first is when baking a yeast-leavened bread that requires a two-proof process, mm-hmm. is there a point in which that can be paused? 
So maybe refrigerated or frozen and, and then restarted later on. This is like in the middle of a rise, you mean? He's talking about like yeah. perhaps the sec- you do the first rise and then pause it and then do the second rise later? Exactly. So thinking about making it you know, before work, freezing it or pausing it somehow, and then sort of finishing it off when you get back home. Yeah, I think professional bakeries uh, retard the rising process all the time by putting it in a cold space, and that just slows it down. So sure, I think you could, even in the middle of a rise, put it in a cold place, and that would reduce the yeast action, and then you could take it out and, and get it going again, right? Yeah, no, I think yeah. so. But the trouble is you still have to wait. Usually it's, what, about an hour or so to double in bulk. Um, yeah, so you're still looking for that doubling in size then. Absolutely, because you need that okay. lightness. You want there to be air. You don't want it to be a dense loaf. Sure. And if it doesn't double, it won't be. But it'll take quite right. a time if you put it, let's say, at 40 degrees and then pull it out when you want to restart it. It'll take a good hour That's or what, more yeah. to get the thing started. It's like one of my old cars you know, years ago. <laughs> See, right. Once you turn it off, it's hard to get it restarted. So it will take a lot more time, but you can certainly put it in the refrigerator. Yeah. Okay. That'll work. Great. A second question, if you're making sort of a batter or something using a leavening agent like baking soda or baking powder or the combination, can that be frozen and then baked from frozen? And if so, is there a difference in using baking soda, baking powder combination that yields better results when frozen? Well, baking powder is double acting, which means it'll work at room temperature in the presence of liquid. And then when the heat gets above, what, 120 or so, it kicks the second, second part kicks in. So once you mix up a batter with baking powder or soda, you will get some action immediately. Cookies, for example, cookie dough can be frozen. Well, you know, Baking also, powder. I'm thinking of my favorite biscuit place in um, South Carolina, Charleston, and they're fantastic. And they're frozen, unbaked. They puff up yeah, beautifully. I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I wouldn't let the batter sit or dough sit at room temperature very long. I would immediately shape them and freeze them. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. And that'll just uh, slow the process down and then restart it when you pop it in the oven. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for calling. That's great. Thanks for calling. It. Take Tyler. care. Bye. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. A simple flavored oil drizzled as a garnish can bring out the very best in simple soups, beans, or vegetables. Try adding a half teaspoon each of crushed red pepper flakes and paprika, sweet or smoked, to three tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil in a small skillet. Heat over medium until a few bubbles appear, just beginning to simmer, and the color of the oil turns a bright red. Drizzle hot over beans, lentil soup, blanched greens, fried eggs, even steak. If you like, add a little grated garlic. Dan Pashman of the Sportful Podcast talks about the classic American tradition of eating in front of the television. Dan, how are you? Good, Chris. I'm, uh, I've been watching some TV lately. How about you? Uh, actually, I, I've, I've been watching, oddly enough, two German TV series in German with subtitles just to improve my language. Wow. Yeah. That's sort of exactly the answer I expected. So you're on the couch in a suit. There you go. It's 10 o'clock at night. You got a bag of popcorn that you're eating using, what, chopsticks or something because you don't want to get any crumbs on your fingers? Absolutely. Maybe you're having a scone with a, some tea or something. <laughs> something like that, yeah. Eating in front of the TV is the kind of thing that, that too many of us do mindlessly, but I think we need to be doing it more mindfully, not only because it will make the food more delicious, but that it will make the entire experience more enjoyable. You know, We need to think about the kinds of foods we eat in front of the TV and how we eat them. So we're assuming that you're in favor of or you've acquiesced to the notion of eating in front of the television. I think, look, I think that you don't want to be eating every single one of your meals in front of the TV, and if it's a special meal that you put a lot of effort into, then it deserves your undivided attention. But sometimes you're just having dinner, you order takeout, there's something good on TV. Okay. I don't think eating Fair. in front of the TV is is inherently bad. It doesn't make you a bad person. So I guess the first question is, are you eating out of hand or are you eating on some sort of table? So, you know, it's funny because I, we did talked about this on the Sporkful podcast recently, and I used to be very, my attitude was, sandwiches because I don't want a plate and a fork and knife to get in my way. First of all, it's uncomfortable to eat off a plate when it's in your lap. Maybe you have a TV tray, but I still sort of feel hunched over that. Also, if you need to keep looking down at the plate to cut bites, that's going to distract you from watching the TV. I, I had a lot of objections and I was a sandwich guy, but I talked to June Thomas, who's a 
who's a TV critic for Slate, who eats a lot of meals in front of the TV, and she made the good point. When you eat a sandwich or any finger food, then that affects the remote. Uh-huh. And then your remotes get very messy. Modern life is so complicated. <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Milk Street Radio is called First World Problems, yeah. brought to you by Chris and Dan. <laughs> so her answer was to wrap the remote in plastic wrap or what? No, sh- she was. She made the case to me convincingly that, you know, fork and knife really is preferable. You know, you could even cut your food up before you start the show. Like not unlike if you were a small child, right. but you're feeding yourself. Like if you're if you're your own parent, if you had to raise yourself. Well, I, I have I do have a suggestion. You know, I, I have a child, a young child. I mean, just get an adult high chair with one of the catch-all bibs. You, you have a place to put your feet. You have a little table. You can put the food. It's right near your head. Because if you notice high chairs, the kid's head and the little table is they're in close proximity for obvious reasons right right one of those rubber bibs that has the big pocket the marsupial pocket so as you (laughs) dribble your stew it's caught Uh, you don't have to worry about your lap why not i just want you to know that as you describe this i'm picturing you in a suit sitting in an adult-sized high chair wearing a bib and that image is giving me it's bringing me so much joy right now Yeah, if you sold adult size high chairs, I would definitely buy one, Chris. So the answer was to to eat on a plate. So w- what is the plate on? Well, I do recommend a TV tray. I think a TV tray. If you're not going to go adult size high chair like Chris Kimball does, I recommend a TV tray because you know you don't want to have to hunch over your food too much. The TV tray elevates it closer to mouth level. It allows you to sit upright, which is better for digestion. And do people actually make and sell TV trays still, those little folding table things? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. The the technology is not found a substitute, at least not until your adult size high chair hits it big. <laughs> My next project. <laughs> okay, okay, so plate and fork, a folding television TV dinner table, uh napkin. I assume, yes. You need a napkin. You might even want to go double napkin, tuck one into the shirt, yeah. you know, for safety, put one on the lap. But then, you know, the other question to ask is, is what types of foods pair best with what TV shows or movies? And the answer is, that's a good question. Well, it's interesting, Chris, because there's a lot of research in sensory science, which shows that, for example, if you're in a, well, you said you're watching German shows lately. If you... If you're in a German restaurant and they have what you perceive as traditional German music playing, you will rate the food itself as being better and more authentic because of the right. music. So if you were to eat German food while watching German TV and practicing your German, I think that it would make the food taste better than if you were watching like a French show while eating your Wiener Schnitzel. Well, if you're watching The Searchers, the John Wayne movie, then I guess a cowboy steak would be appropriate. Exactly. And I think that the food would be better because it would make the the movie an immersive experience in your living room. Well, what about a sci-fi movie about a dystopian future like Blade Runner? Now what? Mm. What food goes with that? That may call for maybe a TV dinner. <laughs> or or maybe maybe it should be with one of those like um newfangled protein bars that's sort of like an entire meal in this sort of like yeah. tube of goo. So so okay, so you match the food. Uh I have one last question for you. Yeah. In this day and age of streaming on demand, you don't actually have to watch a show at any particular time. So you could very easily eat and then start the show at your leisure. So isn't this uh, something really that more, you know, pre-streaming? I think that the streaming thing has changed the game a bit, but I think that, first of all, there's still live sports for people who want to eat while watching sports. And second of all, I would add that if you eat and then watch TV, that time that you were eating... That's time you could have been watching TV also. <laughs> Man, you're, you are worse off than I thought, Dan. You're really, that's, that's a horrendous thought that you, you wouldn't consider a glass of wine and a nice meal without the television on as an, as an improvement on your current living condition. I would consider it, but I mean, sometimes the perfect compliment to a Wiener Schnitzel is a nice German TV show, Chris. Even better than a Riesling. Dan, sometimes we agree and sometimes we don't. I think this is one of the latter. So Dan Pashman suggests eating in front of your television, sinking your food to the subject matter of the TV series. Uh, A fork, a knife, a plate, two napkins, and a TV table are all in order. Dan Pashman, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast. You know, Dan Pashman is interested in the etiquette of TV dinners, but what about their history? Although airlines were serving frozen dinners as early as 1944, 
Swanson first marketed a TV brand frozen dinner in 1953, and it was a Thanksgiving meal. Desserts came in 1960, the Hungry Man dinners in 1973, and the Microwave TV dinner in 1986. The University of Minnesota did a study to answer the question, is watching TV during dinner bad for you? They found that 43% of subject families kept the TV on during dinner. Active TV watchers ate the most amount of fast food. Those who didn't watch TV at all had the healthiest diets, and families with a TV on but just in the background fell in between. So my mother was right. TV is indeed bad for you. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, and order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Eglon. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange.